Galatians chapter 5 is where we will return to this morning. We've been looking at verses 7 through 15 over the last few weeks. And so we're going to look specifically at verses 13 through 15 this morning. Whether we will complete that task or not remains to be seen. But we begin reading in verse number 7, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Throughout this letter, Paul has attempted to get the the Galatians to see the seriousness of their situation and their great need for the gospel. With that disposition, Paul has warned against justification by works in that it will only generate bondage or generate more bondage and disobedience. He has defended justification by faith, claiming that it is the only true gospel, the only way of salvation, and the only way that generates true obedience. Paul is now transitioning from warning and instruction concerning justification to the fruits of justification, which is obedience. This is the place. This is the place where we really get up in arms. This is the place where it really gets our dander up because Paul is going to show or Paul is going to start demanding things. And this is the point of contention. We get ticked off at the warnings, certainly we do, and we don't like hearing about justification by faith alone. But we can create enough wiggle room, especially in our current culture, we can create enough wiggle room to make sure that we can tolerate those things as long as we're given that space. Now, if the messenger will not give us that space, then it becomes a problem even with the warnings and the instruction. Nevertheless, we can take the warnings and redirect them to others by corrupting the doctrine of salvation even further than before. So the warnings come and the instruction come because we corrupt the gospel. And then we create our own little space within those warnings and instructions to corrupt the gospel even further. In order not to take heed to the warnings and not to receive the instruction. So this is the reason why this last part of Paul's discussion in this letter is so important. But 
Paul takes away their attempt to do this very thing, which is called the pendulum, pendulum swing. And so he takes away their attempt to swing the pendulum the other direction. And, of course, that's the same thing that we talked about in Sunday school about the loopholes thing. You know, we get a little pressure from here, and then we try to swing over to here. And what we are doing is basically looking for a way out. And that's what pendulum shifting is all about when we are purposely engaged in that. They were being deceived to believe that God needed help in justification that the merits and sacrifice of Christ was not enough if they did not cooperate and help the Lord out with their good works, as if God's treasury of grace is not sufficient. Well, when uh, when confronted with this erroneous idea and left without any viable answer, what they did and what we do and what Paul anticipated that they would do is simply swing to the other direction and to the other extreme. So we swing back the other way. But notice Paul is not having it. He said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. What did he know that they were going to do? So they're like, yeah, we've got to have these works in order to be justified by God. Paul comes along and it's like, "Uh uh-uh, it's by faith alone. And then they're like, oh, we can do whatever we want to do. So he's saying, you've been called to liberty, but don't use your liberty as an occasion to serve the flesh. In other words, he's saying, that's not the definition of liberty. See, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed by Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. But when God justifies a sinner, he changes them. That's the whole purpose, right? Coming to God because you're a sinner, you need help. He turns them from sinners to saints judicially in justification. He declares them to be righteous because of Christ's. The imputation of Christ's righteousness and the atoning sacrifice of his blood. God declares that those who have faith in Christ to be righteous, to be just. That's why we shouldn't get all upset about Peter referring to righteous lot. Because God declares us to be righteous based upon faith. So, he justifies sinners. He turns them from sinners to saints judicially in justification. But that's not all he does. See, that's our problem is that we, what we do is we shortchange God. That's our way out. God justified me. (laughs) I don't have to do anything by faith alone. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be good. I can be bad all I want to because I've been justified. See, that's what we like to do. We go from one thing to the other. Or then we, then we get a little pushback there and we're like, oh yeah, well, you know, I got to help God out with my good works because I'm such a good person, even though I've already admitted that I wasn't. 
But God justifies sinners, and he changes them from sinners to saints, judicially in justification, but that's not all he does. He also changes them from sinners to saints morally through justification or through sanctification. Ugh, messed that one up, didn't I? Judicially through justification, morally through sanctification. And you can throw in other words too, practically. Morally or practically, either one will work. The question everyone should have today is, then why are we not seeing this in any significance today? Because, remember in Romans chapter 8, whom he justifies, whom he calls, he justifies, and whom he justifies, he glorifies. It's his whole complete work of salvation. Salvation is not, let me repeat, Salvation is not just you get to go to heaven. And, you know, that's kind of a temporal thing anyway. It's not that that you get to go to heaven. Salvation is not just all the bad things you've ever did gets forgotten. If that's all salvation is, that's not salvation. Salvation is a new creation in Christ. So what we should be doing today as we come through the book of Galatians and be like, hmm, Houston, we have a problem. And it wouldn't take much investigation for us to be able to say, Houston, we have found the problem. But we have a problem, right? Because, yeah we, yeah, we can experience and see that there's this aspect in America and amongst Christians and amongst ourselves of this declaration of the forgiveness of our sins. But what about the cleansing of our sins? So we can see, at least, you know, in theory, the aspect of justification But what about seeing practically the demonstration of sanctification? The simple answer, and that's a good question, why aren't we seeing this with any significance? Why is the good man, why has the righteous man, the godly man, ceased from the earth? Why are the faithful disappearing? Why are we not seeing the gospel at work as described by Paul and as evidenced in the work and ministry of the church throughout the first century? You see, that's a good question, right? Well, the simple answer is this, and it's the reason why Paul was working so hard here with the Galatians. Because we think of it, it's like, oh my goodness, what a boring subject. Why is Paul all worked up? So what if they attribute part of their salvation to their merits? It's no big deal. At least it'll keep them on the straight and narrow, right? That's what I've heard before. Uh, at least it'll keep them on the straight and narrow, which it doesn't work, by the way. If you look at all the Armenian-dominated 
groups. Ooh, buddy. They're the ones that are demanding and declaring that you have to have good works in cooperation for your salvation. And they have some of the worst works ever demonstrated. Because it's like Paul, Paul says, you know, this, this doctrine that you Galatians are upholding, it's caused you now to be disobedient. You're disobeying the truth. And so, so why, why, why aren't we seeing this first century Christianity today? I mean, and, and why are we going to continue to con, try to con everybody and pull the wool over everybody's eyes? Because let's be honest. Do you, any of us really think that our faith is at this uh, uh, level of demonstration in the church in relation to the first century? And there are other times in history we could do the same thing. What about during the Great Reformation? What about the first Great Awakening here in the United States? Are we, I mean, let's go back a hundred years ago and compare our faith to the faith of the average Christian a hundred years ago. Do we think it's higher or lower? Do we think we're more godly or less godly than them? So there's a problem, right? We have a problem, and we have continued to kind of pull the wool over everybody's eyes uh, for years and years and years, but we have a problem. And the simple answer is this, is that first of all, the gospel has been perverted. And that's the reason why Paul is so strong, some might say bullheaded, in his opposition to these heirs in the church of Galatia. Because he knows where it's going to take them and what it's going to do. He knows that this is a life or death issue. And you know, at the surface level, nothing ever seems too bad, right? Right? Isn't that how things go? I mean, the first time, the very first time someone does a line of coke, what's the big deal? That wasn't, that was nothing. I mean, look at me. What did it do? How about the first hit of meth? Yeah, well, you know, the simple answer to that is, yeah, come see me in another year. And then we'll go back to that first instance and say, was it really a big deal or not? Yes, it was a big deal. Because it's going to produce something, a whole train of events, a whole set of circumstances, and a whole set of consequences. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Yes, we believe in the gateways and the slippery slopes. Because that's the way it works. It's it's what happens. So Paul has all this opposition towards these heirs because he knows that this corruption will cause them to be corrupted. This perversion of the truth will cause them to be perverted. 
That's the reason why he says, I marvel that you're so soon turning from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So because the gospel is perverted, he knows that that will pervert them. And he knows that it will bring a curse. That's why he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Because he knows that that accursed gospel will damn those who are adherents to it. See, Paul knows, and the reason why he is so forceful, is he knows that instead of being justified by grace, we'll be found sinners. In chapter 2, in verse 16, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, Paul's also very forceful about this because he does not want, he, he, he understands. And the reason why they were objecting to it because they understand that this gospel of justification by faith in Jesus Christ requires, requires crucifixion. Paul said in relation to this gospel of justification by faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's salvation. To be delivered, to be saved, to be in Christ is to give up the old and embrace the new. It's to reckon yourself to be dead, but alive to God in and through Jesus Christ. So he says, I've been crucified by Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The reason why there's this confrontation is because we are bewitched. And disobedient when it comes to the gospel. That's the reason why Paul said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And it's because we're foolish. Which is why Paul asked them, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit that you are now being made perfect by the flesh. Because we are all these things, we just swing, right? Back and forth, all over the place. Going from the one thing to the next. So we will give up our good works faith as, as, as long as we can turn it into a no works faith. So that's what we do, right? And so Paul's heading that off at the pass. Paul's not going to give him that space. And he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And that brings us to the freeing purpose of the gospel. First of all, let's notice the interpretation of liberty. 
Because Paul's saying something a little different here. You've been called to liberty, only do not use liberty. Notice he's not defining it this way. He's saying what you'll do is you'll take that liberty, and then you will use it in a way that is not according to its essence. He says, You have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, or as an excuse for the flesh. One of the most, most, wor- <laughs> most used words today where there is no consensus on the meaning anymore, is the word liberty. I mean, people are throwing it around everywhere. You know, the guy that's going, and I'm doing it this way because it's drugs, right? (laughs) But liberty. And, and, And the guy who is... Um, the pyramid scheme person, liberty. You know, it's, it's liberty to do all these wrong things, right? It's the most used word with the least amount of consensus on what does it mean. The word liberty. Everybody wants it, but nobody knows what it is. It's a word that gets characterized in different ways, and most working definitions are confusing today. For example, let's listen to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which defines first, freedom from restraint. Okay, so it goes into the whole degrees and, and so forth of that. But basically, freedom from restraint is the general sense of the word. Not to be confined. And then it goes in to define natural liberty, which is important because there's this natural uh, liberty that we possess where it is unabridged by the establishment of government or where it is abridged. So it is unabridged in the natural state, but in the aspects of community and in the aspect of society, Civil liberty is the liberty of men in a state of society or natural liberty so far only so far only abridged and restrained as is necessary and expedient for the safety and interest of the society, state, or nation. So the way that you have the most liberty is in the natural state, and that is by yourself in the middle of nowhere with no one else ever around. You see, this is the thing that people don't understand. It, it, it's not that all alone by yourself you have the liberty to do evil. It's that you have complete liberty that's unabridged because there's no one there to murder. There's no one there to commit adultery with. There's no one there to steal from. So liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want.
So there's this restraint on natural liberty because you cannot violate the liberty of someone else. Now listen to the current Merriam-Webster's online dictionary in defining liberty. The power to do as one pleases. Now there are other things listed there, but you know the quality or state of being free. Um, okay, what exactly does that mean? But notice in the old dictionary, liberty is not freedom from law, but the law is essential to civil liberty. Like, for instance, in the hymn, America, America, where it states in the second verse, O beautiful for pilgrims' feet, whose stern and passion stress, a thoroughfare for freedom be across the wilderness. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. Isn't that amazing? That seems oxymoronic to us today, doesn't it? That, 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 that seems like a contradiction. Because that is not the way that we view liberty and understand the word. We think it's live free or die. Right? Notice in the modern dictionary, liberty is the power to do as one pleases, which means there is no law except for the law of the one who pleases. Today, this is further confused among Christians by the biblical terms under law and under grace in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, where we find the statement, the only thing that anybody knows, right? It's kind of like, judge not lest you be judged. It's kind of like that verse. That's the only part of that passage they know, which they pull out of context. Well, it's the same way with, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Everybody knows that phrase, but they are pulling it out of context. Too many Christians take this to mean that the law has been abrogated, removed, or made void. Yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 31, Do we then make Void the law through faith? Certainly not. God forbid. On the contrary, we establish the law. Plus, consider the context of chapter 6 in Romans, where we find the statement, for you are not under law but under grace. The question Paul asks at the beginning of this chapter is whether we should continue in sin that grace may abound. His short answer is, certainly not, or God forbid. But he goes on to say in verses 12 through 14, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Is he telling them to do what they please? No. He's telling them not to sin. And what is sin? According to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. With that understanding, what we 
find in the follow-up statement in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 is this. What then? Shall we sin? Shall we transgress the law because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. That's not the definition of liberty then. You see, it is clear that this statement about being under the law or under grace is not talking about being without law to God or that the law is no longer a standard of right and wrong. Being under the law means to be under its curse. To be under the law means to be under its uh, uh, guilt. Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The word liberty in its simplest form means free from restraint, not free from law. We're under law as far as the obligations and duties of it. We are under the obligations of right and wrong. But liberty is freedom from restraint. It's freedom from the restraint of the law. Because that's what the law is intended to restrain evil doers. To restrain sin. We are no longer confined in guilt. We have been set free in Christ, free from guilt. We are no longer under a curse. We have been blessed in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been changed. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us, and now we are the servants, the slaves of God. We are no longer restrained by the law, but constrained by love. The law keeps you from doing what you want to do, but love frees you to do what you want to do. We have to chew on that a little bit. The law restrains the flesh. Love frees the spirit. If you walk in the flesh, you need the law to restrain you from doing what you want to do. If you walk in, the, uh, if you walk in faith, it frees you to do what you want to do. It frees you to righteousness rather than being enslaved to sin. The law restrains a sinner from doing what is evil. The love of Christ frees us from restraint to do what is right. It frees us from the restraint of our flesh. And that is the reason why most have an erroneous definition of liberty is because they have an erroneous definition of the gospel. If liberty means doing what you please, then the gospel means doing what you please. If the gospel means doing what you please, then liberty means doing what you please. If liberty is to be free from restraint to do what you ought, then the gospel is to be freed from the dominion of sin to do what you ought. If that is not the gospel you desire. A gospel that frees you from adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which, by the way, Paul says that he had told the Galatians in time past that they who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But a gospel that frees you 
from the, also from the dominion of sin and liberate you to walk in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then you need to repent of a false gospel. And you need to look to Christ and live. You need to repent and submit to the word of God and to Christ and his church. Notice the injunction against licentiousness that is contained and insinuated and implied here in this passage. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity to the flesh. Matthew Henry wrote, The liberty we enjoy as Christians is not a licentious liberty, Though Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, yet he has not freed us from the obligation of it. The gospel is a doctrine according to godliness and is so far from giving the least countenance to sin that it lays us under the strongest obligations to avoid and subdue it. That what we've been saying, that listen... What God did with the law through Moses is nothing what God did with the law through Jesus Christ. And we are under sore punishment than what the Old Testament saints were under at Sinai. If we trample underfoot the son, the blood of the covenant. So we're under higher obligations, greater duties and responsibilities. And so, there's this injunction against licentiousness that Paul is warning about. Because he knew it's going to be their reaction, that they're going to go from one extreme to the other. Oh, Paul, we can't provide the merits for our own salvation, so then we're just not going to worry about any type of good works. He knew exactly, so he's warning them. Don't use your liberty as an excuse to go the other extreme and live licentiously. Remember, Jude warns us and tells us that we have to earnestly contend for the faith that was handed down to the saints. Because, he says, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is warning them not to go the other direction. Not to turn from their pharisaical ideas and then now turn to a libertine idea. Not to turn from legalism to libertarianism. And so we see here the implementation of love as the very important criteria in the fulfillment of the law. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. Because the love of Christ now constrains us. The love of Christ has now been manifested unto us. But through love, Serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Matthew Henry said, 
Mutual strifes among brethren, if persisted in, are likely to prove a common ruin. Those that devour one another are in a fair way to be consumed one of another. Christian churches cannot be ruined but by their own hands. But if Christians who should be helps to one another and a joy to one another be as brute beasts, biting and devouring one another, what can be expected but that the God of love should deny his grace to them and the spirit of love should depart from them and that the evil spirit who seeks the destruction of them all should prevail. So when we see the decimation all around us and when we see the decimation of the church. It comes down to this, that we had a false gospel that didn't produce love for God and love for man. It didn't fulfill the law. See, it was a gospel designed to remove our obligations from the law. Rather than being a gospel that justified sinners to make new creatures who would go forth into this world and bring in everlasting righteousness. Christ came to do what Adam couldn't do in order to make a new creation that would. But we've had a false gospel. It's a gospel of licentiousness. It's a gospel of legalism. And we just fly back and forth from one extreme to the next. Whenever we get a little up opposition on one side, we run over here. Whenever we get a little opposition over here, we run back to this air over here. Never wanting to focus on Christ crucified. Because that is a gospel that calls us to crucifixion. It calls, calls us to die. It causes us to be united in his death and raised up in his uh, resurrection and in his likeness to walk in new life, to fulfill the law by loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. These are the two things that Jesus said were the greatest commandments and that all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. See, because if you love God, you'll put him first. And you'll have no other gods before you. If you love God, you're not going to mar his image. If you love God, you're not going to profane his name. If you love God, you're going to give him his due. And if you love your neighbor, you're not, you're going to, if you're going to honor your parents, because that's your very first neighbor, you're going to honor your parents. You're not going to take your neighbor's wife. You're not going to take your neighbor's possessions. You're not going to take your neighbor's reputation and you're not going to covet everything that is your neighbor's. You're going to want what's beneficial and profitable to him. You see, this is what Paul tells Timothy. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. 
from a good conscience and from a sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine... According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The purpose of the gospel is not to make a bunch of transgressors of the law. The purpose of the gospel is to take sinners and make them saints. The gospel is not a license for men to transgress it. It is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The gospel does not make void the law. The gospel fulfills the law and it establishes the law in, through the love of Christ that has been given to us. The gospel is to justify sinners and make saints out of those sinners. The gospel is to turn us from Satan and idols to the one true and the living God. To turn us from sin to righteousness. To turn us from hate to love. To turn us from disobedience to obedience. The gospel is liberation from sin and freedom to do what is right. Because it is really just a revealing of the source of our being. Are we Walking in the flesh or are we walking in the spirit? The flesh will do what the flesh does and therefore must be restrained. The spirit will do what the spirit does and therefore must be turned loose. Too bad in our day and time that we do not have a church that is filled with those who walk in the spirit to turn loose on this world because it would be a different world. And if this church, if we... If you and if I were such a church, it would be a different Mooresville. It would be a different Canby. It would be a different Morgan County. It would, this would be a church that stands out as something radically different. Now, the disclaimer has to come in. Because, remember, we want to run from extreme to extreme. I'm not saying that Christians are sinless. Christians sin and sin in some very grievous ways. But they do not desire sin. They are not given over to sin. It is not their nature, and therefore, when they do walk in the flesh, their faith causes them to confess Christ and confess their sin and trust in Christ's merits and sacrifice to amend their lives so that they are not practicing sin. What I'm saying is this, is that we are to be practicing Christians. Practicing, exercising the gospel in our lives. Not exercising and practicing the flesh in our lives. And practicing sin. You see, what you practice 
is what you'll become good at if you practice. But when you practice, guess what? You'll make errors. You'll make mistakes. You'll not do things right. And that's why you practice. And you practice. The problem is, is there is no practice of the gospel today. Because we have a false gospel. We are nearly extinct. And the question comes down to this, to the church in 2022. When are we going to wake up? I'm going to give you the lyrics to a song titled that very thing, When You Gonna Wake Up. It was sung by Bob Dylan, 1979, from the album Slow Moving, or Slow Train Coming, I'm sorry. It is a question that was being asked then. And you know what? We didn't wake up. How many times, how many more times will God give us the opportunity by sending someone along to proclaim these words to us, asking us when we're going to wake up? You see, we're to the point now where we're nearly extinct. When are we going to wake up? What we must first do is wake up and strengthen the things that remain. And if we don't, we will go down in history. And I don't know of any other example. I mean, we can point our fingers at the Roman church in the medieval time, but I'm telling you they were way more godly than us. They were way more Christian than us. We will go down in history as the very worst example, the very worst demonstration. We will be the object lesson of what not to do. When are we going to wake up? The gospel is not a gospel of how good we are. And the gospel is not a gospel of how bad we can be. It's a gospel about a holy and righteous God who commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, sent Christ to die for us so that we could be called to his death and be crucified with him and raised up in new life to live as servants unto righteousness. Father, wake up our cold, stony hearts. Wake up my cold, stony heart. For I confess that I do not love you as I ought. I confess that I do not love my neighbor as myself because I love myself a bunch. I confess that I don't have fear for you. I confess that I do not take your word as if I was hearing the very 
voice of God crying out from heaven. I confess that I view my sins as little and everybody else's sins as great. I confess that I am not zealous as I should be for you. I confess that if I truly believe the gospel, I would have more urgency about the lost condition of those around me. I confess that if my faith was stronger, that I would have more of a desire for righteousness and godliness. Father, we are in desperate need of you. As a pastor friend this morning sent me a text, and his prayer was that the Lord would pour, that you would pour down your spirit upon us because we are a dry and thirsty land. We are a needy people. And this once promised land, this once land of milk and honey is now a desert. And the reason why it's a desert is because our hearts are deserts. Father, we pray that you would help us in Christ's name. Amen.